Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all. It is great to, to be here yet another week, another week together as the family of God, another week to worship him, another week to dig into his truths. So according to a study that was done by the Pew Research Center, that's the PEW Research Center, which if you don't know, that's a foundation. They're one of those foundations that collects a lot of data and comes up with a lot of studies that we hear. According to them, the number one thing that Americans say brings meaning to life is family and children. According to their research, the number one thing that Americans say bring meaning to life is family and children. Career is second. Material well-being is third. And there's a list. I forget how many. I think about 19 things on the list. Next to last was spirituality, faith, and religion. You want to know what was last? Pets. Which surprised me because people are so enamored with their pets, I figured that would be higher, but whatever. The number one thing that Americans say brings meaning to life is family and children. Now, what happens if we center our lives around these things? Even something as important, something as God-given as family and children. What happens if we center our lives around these things. Does that really bring meaning? Does it really bring happiness? Does it really bring purpose? Does it really bring true joy? We're continuing in our study of Philippians this morning, joy in the journey. Our Christian life is a journey and it's a journey with Christ at the center. This morning, I want to look at the Christ-centered life. Paul in Philippians 1, 18 through 30 is going to show us that his life is centered around Jesus Christ, and he's going to give us an example to follow and an encouragement to obey. We're going to see in, in two different sections, you see in your notes, that we're looking at the Christ-centered individual and the Christ-centered church. Paul is giving us an example to follow and an encouragement to obey. You know, it's interesting. We're continuing the letter of Philippians. We have seen, as we've already talked about, the salutation at the beginning. We've seen the thanks and prayers that he had to offer. Last week, we looked at the update, right? The update in Paul's life, and we talked about how he Christianized that. We really didn't look at what was going on in Paul's life. We looked about at what God was doing through Paul's life. We looked at the advancement of the gospel despite the fact that he was in chains. This week, we're going to look at the advance of the gospel in Paul's own life. I've told you before, this is a personal letter. We see personal things that are going on, and we see from, from Paul's example that his life is Christ-centered. So you see in your notes, I've got it broken up into two sections. Each section has three subpoints. Your first subpoint this morning, 1A, a Christ-centered individual has confidence in Jesus' deliverance. A Christ-centered individual has confidence in Jesus' deliverance. What we see here is that Paul is looking beyond his circumstances, and he's confident that he's going to be released. Read along with me at the end of 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, he writes. 
For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, I've told you before that what we're looking at, he is probably most likely writing from prison in Rome. We talked about last week how he was chained to guards and how he was probably in a house at his own expense under house arrest. And this is likely the first of two Roman imprisonments. And he writes that I will, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, that word deliverance there could also be translated salvation. So one of two things is going on in the mind of Paul. He's writing and he's either saying, I'm going to be delivered from this prison. I'm going to be released from this. Or he's writing and he's saying, I'm going to be ultimately released. I am going to be released in the sense that I'm going to go home to heaven. One of two ways I will be released. He's not worried about his circumstances. He's not worried about his chains. He is focused on Christ. And he says one way or another, I will be released. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Have you ever heard the phrase, this too shall pass? Maybe you've even said that to yourself when something difficult happened, when something painful is going on or when something awkward just happened. You're like, this too shall pass. That's Paul's attitude here. This too shall pass. Now, what's he relying on? How does he know that? Look back at the text. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That term, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that's simply the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, through your prayers and the Holy Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. God is sovereign. God is overall. God is in control. God has an overarching plan for human history and an overarching plan for your life. He is in complete and sovereign control. I heard a pastor say one day that God rules and reigns with his feet up because he is in control. And nothing that man can do can thwart God's plan. And yet, he invites us to pray. Somehow, mysteriously, God's sovereign plan incorporates the prayers of his saints so that whatever is going on in your life, he wants you to bring to him. God is like a CEO with an overarching plan that knows his business and knows exactly what he wants to do, and yet he is interested in the opinion of the lowly mail worker. That's the God that we serve. So Paul's saying through your prayers and the Holy Spirit, this is not gonna turn out for my shame. Ultimately, I'm not gonna be ashamed at this. Ultimately, this is gonna turn out for my deliverance. He says, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
Let's back up just a little bit here. In Acts chapter 25, Paul had appealed to Caesar for the crimes, or for the charges rather, that were brought against him. He's in prison awaiting to come before Caesar. But even in those circumstances, a lot of people believe right now that the the Caesar right now was Nero, who was nuts. Even in these circumstances, he is confident, he's even excited, he is joyful that Christ is going to be honored through his body, whether by life or by death. He is Christ-centered. Today, you and I, we face all kind of tough situations and circumstances. My wife and I like to say that life is heavy. It's heavy. We don't like to say that, but we say that. Life is heavy. Life is heavy. And with all of you, maybe you're in a time of heaviness, maybe you're not. But you have experienced times where life is heavy. There's discouragement. There's painful events. There's broken relationships. There's health struggles. But these two shall pass. You might be in a time of financial struggle and you might be saying, you know what, I I can't even pay my bills this month. This too shall pass. I've got conflict with my family, my relatives. It's putting strain on our relationship. This too shall pass. My health is taking a bad turn for the worse. This too shall pass. Then you might say to me, well, what if it doesn't? What if my situation does not pass? What if I live the rest of my life in these painful circumstances? I once heard John Piper say, and I looked for the quote this week, I couldn't find it, but I heard him say, it went something like this. He said, what if you spend 60, 70, 80 years on earth with the exact same pain and problems? And then you die. And then you spend the next 87 million ages of years in the presence of Jesus Christ. Does it really compare? No. And that's the idea here. Paul says, my salvation is sure, either by life or by death, and it's your prayers and the Holy Spirit that are gonna see me through this. I'm either gonna be released or I'm gonna die. Either way, Christ will be honored. Look at verse 21. This is the capstone right here. Verse 21, for me... To live is Christ and to die is gain. That should be etched on every heart of every believer. That is the summation of the Christian life, that we live for Christ and we die is gain. No matter what happens, my life is about Jesus Christ. If I ever get a tattoo, (laughs) this is what I'm tempted Put it right across my forehead. Maybe not. But to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when you center your life around anything but Christ, you veer from that. And you begin to make your life about anything but Christ. For the Christian, Christ till death. And after that, 
eternity. So no matter what you're going through, Christian, and I don't mean to trivialize anyone's pain, life is heavy, and you could be going through some really difficult things, and I'm not trivializing that, but let me remind you, life is Christ, and death is gain. This too shall pass. So a Christ-centered individual has confidence in Jesus' deliverance. Point 1B, a Christ-centered individual has a deep desire to obey Jesus. A Christ-centered individual has a deep desire to obey Jesus. Paul writes in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Now, I read this, and I can't help but think this is Paul's Hamlet moment. To be or not to be. But whereas Hamlet was contemplating suicide, Paul is doing no such thing here. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Paul's saying, if I remain, if I stay alive, the outcome is gonna be more work for the Lord. It's gonna be Ephesians 2.10, the good works that God prepared beforehand. His life is so centered around Christ that each moment of life is dedicated to the work of God. If I'm gonna go on living, I'm gonna go on serving. He says in verse 23, I am hard-pressed between the two, or he says rather, back up to verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Now, Paul is not thinking of taking his own life here. He's not suggesting that. He is merely considering the possibility that his imprisonment will end in execution. He is certain that it's not, but he's, he's contemplating the possibility, the idea, theoretically, this could lead to my execution. That could be the result here, and he says, I am hard-pressed between the two. That Greek word, hard-pressed, it's one word in the Greek, and it means being hemmed in between two narrow walls of rock. He's expressing his feeling of being stuck between two possibilities. And he says, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Now, he's not actually suggesting that he has a choice here. He knows it's not up to him. He knows that he could go to Caesar. It's up to Caesar to determine whether he lives or dies. But really, it's not even up to Caesar. It's up to God. His desire is to obey God. And if that means death, great, because that's far better. Amen. But if it doesn't mean death, I go on to fruitful living. Amen. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. But, verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul recognizes there's still work to be done. God is not done with me. There is work to be done. There is work among the churches to be done, which means, we're gonna get into this in the next point, but, but this means Paul is others-focused. He is people-focused. He is so centered around Christ that even if he gets out of prison, he's gonna go right back to the work of serving people for the sake of Christ. He's not thinking to himself, I'm gonna get out of prison, 
and I'm headed to the beach. I'm going to get a coconutty drink in my hand and I'm going to sit on the sand. He's thinking if I get out of here, I'm going right back to work. I'm going right back to the gospel. I'm going right back to the churches. I'm going right back to proclaiming what I know is true about Jesus Christ. He has a deep desire to obey Jesus. His life is Christ-centered for the work of the gospel. So a Christian-centered individual, the example we're seeing here from Paul, is a deep desire to obey Jesus. So let me ask you this. Where is your desire level for obedience? You might be right here with Paul. Your idea might be absolutely to live as Christ and to die as gain. Every day I obey Jesus. That is my deep desire. That is what I want to accomplish with my whole life. Come what may. And if that's you, praise the Lord. You hold on to that attitude. But can I make an observation true about myself and I think true about many Christians is yes, we have a desire to obey Jesus, but there are so many other things pulling at our desires. So many other things in this life that are pulling at our desires. And I think many Christians fall into this category that I am distracted by so much. There are so many things in this life that are appealing, like a shiny lure to a fish. And does that describe you? If that's true, then I would ask you, what steals your desire to obey Jesus? I'm not talking about demands on our time. We all have demands on our time, work and family and different things that we have going on that we have to do. And in those, we can be obedient to the Lord. But what, what, I'm, what I'm talking about are the deep things that tempt us away from the one who sustains our soul. What are those deep things that my soul longs for, that I find myself contemplating rather than Jesus? Things like comfort, things like security, Things like possessions, things like personal time, things like hobbies, fears, the what ifs. Those things fill our mind and they distract us from the one who is meant to lead us to joyful, undistracted obedience. So I would ask, well, where does that deep desire come from? How can I get beyond those things that distract me to the deep desire to obey Jesus? Jesus says in John 14, 15, quite simply, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, a deep desire to obey Jesus stems from a deep love of Jesus. What does your heart love? Is Jesus first and foremost? Are you letting your love for Jesus override all the other desires that your heart and my heart, our sinful hearts, long for? I've used this example before, but I'm going to say it again. Francis Chan, in his book, Crazy Love, he writes that in his best days, he loves Jesus above all. But there are many days he does not and in those days, he goes to the Lord honestly and he says, Lord, I want to want to love you, but I don't help me. And on those days, my challenge to you is to want to want to love Jesus and tell him that.
strive to love Jesus above all else. Point 1C, lastly we see here that a Christ-centered individual is committed to serving Jesus' body. A Christ-centered individual is committed to serving Jesus' body. We've already hinted at this, but we're gonna talk about it more. Verse 25, convinced of this, convinced of the fact that I know that I'm gonna be released, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Though Paul wrestled with this idea of to go and be with Jesus or to stay He is convinced that he's going to remain, and he is convinced that he's going to continue his work. He even says, I know I will remain and continue with you all. He senses that it's not done. God's not finished with him yet, and his focus, therefore, is on the sanctification of the believers. He has always been others-focused. Paul is always since his conversion, has been others-focused. The work of God, that's the work of God. The work of God is people-focused. It always has been, and it always will be. You know, sometimes people call me throughout the week, call me for prayer, call me with questions, or just need to talk, and a lot of times they'll say something like this, sorry to bother you. You know, when my heart's in the right place, my response is, that's my job. My job is people. My job is serving people. That's what the gospel is all about. My heart's not always in that place, I'll be honest, but that is what the gospel is about. He says in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That progress and joy in the faith. Now progress, that's the same word we saw in verse 12 of the word advancement when he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Your progress, your forward movement, your sanctification. Through his leadership, Paul played a major role in their sanctification. And what is a natural byproduct of growth in faith? Joy. For your progress and joy in the faith, I'm going to remain. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is another picture of Paul's Christ-centeredness here because he's so Christ-centered that when he does get out, he wants the Philippians to rejoice in God. It's not even about the fact that I'm free. It's not about me. It's about the fact that God's working. He is so Christ-centered that he wants God to be glorified. And a Christ-centered individual is committed to serving Jesus' body to the glory of God. Paul is committed to serving Jesus' body. Are you? We've talked about community in our series. We've talked about partnership in our series. Are you committed to one another? Are you committed to loving and serving the people within these walls? Let's take another step. Are you committed to loving and serving the brothers and sisters beyond these walls? And maybe you do. Friends in other places, other churches, other states that you reach out to, I hope you do, and encourage them in the Lord. You know, we have a great opportunity coming up to serve brothers and sisters on the other side of the world. 
just a couple short months, we get believers from Turkey to come and to spend some time with us. And I'm curious, have you asked yourself, how can I love on them? They've coming, they're coming here to learn some things us, from us, and I'm betting we're going to learn some things from them. And I just want to challenge you, pray about that. How can you be a part, even a small part, of serving those believers coming from Turkey? I'm excited about that, and I hope you are too. So we've looked at our first point, a Christ-centered individual. Now I want to turn to our second point, a Christ-centered church. Paul has given them an example to follow. Now he's given them an, an encouragement to obey. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in verse 26, he ended in his confidence that he was going to come see them. And in verse 27, he opens with this word, this Greek word, manos, which simply means only. And what he's doing here is he's drawing their focus to his first imperative. We've made it all the way, almost all the way through chapter one before we reach an imperative, a do this command. And he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Walk worthy is what he's saying there. Walk worthy of the gospel. Now that word manner, in the Greek, it's palatuomai, and it means to be a citizen. To be a citizen. Philippi, you might remember, was a Roman colony. They were Roman citizens. They had Roman privileges. And what Paul is wanting to point out here is that if you're in the church, you're a part of a heavenly colony. You are citizens of heaven, so represent your country well. Warren Wearsby tells a story of he and his wife were visiting London one time, and they were on a bus. And at the front of the bus, there was this group of people who were loud and obnoxious and annoying. And the rest of the people on the bus were Londoners, and they all knew that the people at the front were Americans. Warren Risby writes about he and his wife, they were embarrassed about this because they didn't feel like the Americans were representing their country well. Brothers, sisters, fellow believers, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Represent your country, your heavenly country, well. How do we do that? How do we do that? He goes on, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. If I get to come and see you, I want to see that you're walking worthy. If I don't, I at least want to hear that you're walking worthy. And what does that look like? It looks like standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Point 2A in your notes, a Christ-centered church stands firm together. A Christ-centered church stands firm together. The Greek stand firm, there is one word, stako. It means firmly committed in conviction or belief. In other words, be committed to each other in one spirit with one mind. Unity. Be committed in one spirit with one spirit in one mind. Now that spirit and mind, that's the idea of attitude, and perspective, attitude, 
and perspective. It's harmony. It's interdependence. It's having an attitude of love for each other. That's working in one spirit. And it's having a perspective that we are one. Just like a husband and wife are meant to treat their marriage as one, so the church is one. Yes, we are individuals. Yes, we have different gifts and talents, but we are meant to look and love as if we are one. How do we do that? It means getting behind our mission. It means getting behind our mission. Harvest Decatur exists to glorify God by making mature disciples who worship, walk with, and work for Christ. That is not something we came up with. We get that from Matthew chapter 28. To make disciples. We get on board with that idea and following that, what we believe based upon biblical scripture, what we believe the church is about are our four pillars. Unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness. And if you're on board with those things, then we can walk in unity. If you're not on board with those things, then our unity is going to suffer. That's what we're about as a church. That is walking in unity. That is striving, as he says here, side by side for the faith of the gospel. The word striving here, it's, it's where we get our word for athletics. It means struggling along with like a team, like a sports team would struggle together. That's what we are. We struggle together for the advancement of the gospel. And a Christ-centered church stands firm together. Now, we've talked a lot about community. We've talked a lot about partners. I know I keep coming back to this idea of unity and struggling together and living together and worshiping together and serving the Lord together. I get that. It keeps coming back to us in the text. So don't get tired of it. Because that's who we're meant to be. A Christ-centered church stands firm in unity. Point 2B, a Christ-centered church is fearless together. A Christ-centered church is fearless together. He says in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, the Greek for frightened is only used here in the New Testament, and it's a word in the first century that was used of horses who were spooked by something harmless. What he's saying is here is, don't be spooked. Don't be frightened. Don't get scared, because whatever you face is really harmless. Don't be spooked by your opponents. Now, opponents here... That would be those who are opposing the gospel. It's really more than people. It's anything that's opposing the gospel. That's your opponents. Anything that's opposing the gospel message. And what Paul is saying here is that the fact that they're opposing the gospel message is a sign that they're on their way to destruction. But Christian, it's also a sign that you are on the right path. It's a sign of your salvation. If you're facing opposition for your faith, That's a sign that you're doing something right. It's meant to be an encouragement. Last week, we talked about the commonness of persecution in Paul's day. We talked about persecution was common. We talked about that. The gospel has always had opponents, and it always will 
till Christ returns. So I asked myself this week, what opponents do we face as Americans? We're not living in the first century. We're not facing prison for our faith. Our persecution comparatively is light to Paul's and even other parts of the world in our day to day. So what do we face? What are our opponents? I think one of the main opponents that we face as American Christians is our own culture. The ideas, the philosophies that arise from our own culture. Cultural shifts can cause us as Americans fear, can distract us from the simplicity of the gospel. Let me give you an example. The LGBTQ has exploded over the past few years. They're in our, our, our culture. Their voice is heard everywhere. Sexual orientation and gender identity pushed their way all through the American culture and it's even invaded the church. Things in our culture are changing to accommodate this movement, such as businesses changing their restroom policies. I remember a few years ago when, when, when some of the gender identity stuff was really coming out. I was serving as a youth pastor and I knew I'm going to get youth in my ministry who are struggling with gender identity. How do I deal with it? I remember even, even a sense of fear. What do I do with this? I was reminded by a brother at that time that our identity, even our gender identity, it all comes from the Lord. But it's infiltrating our church Churches are getting into trouble when they don't accommodate these movements. Church Christian businesses are being fined when they don't accommodate these movements. What are we supposed to do in the face of this kind of opposition? Paul tells us, don't be afraid. What really can they do to us? Fine us? Sue us? So what? To live is Christ and to die is gain. But that's going to cause me to difficulty in life. And I hurt for you. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So we do not fear. We center our lives around Jesus Christ and we remember that our Savior has already overcome the world. Point 2C, lastly, a Christ-centered church suffers together. A Christ-centered church suffers together. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. He says, it has been granted. Did everybody see that? It's been granted. It's been given to you for what? Not just my faith. My faith has been given to me by God, but it's been granted that we as a church suffer. The word granted there is charizomai, and it means to give freely as a favor 
to give graciously. What he's saying here is your suffering has been given to you graciously by the Lord. Your suffering has been given. It's a gift of grace from God. R. Kent Hughes writes this. The suffering that comes to a Christian as a Christian is not a sign of God's neglect, but rather a proof that grace is at work in his or her life. And notice, this is suffering for the sake of Christ. Do you see that there in the text? It's suffering for the sake of Christ. I once had a professor who used to say, everyone, believer and unbeliever, deals with the thorns and thistles of life. Everyone does. Your car breaks down. That doesn't necessarily mean you're suffering for Jesus. Your heathen neighbor's car is going to break down too. You catch a cold. You're not suffering from the gospel. Your heathen neighbor is going to catch a cold too. This is suffering specifically for the sake of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong because God does use the thorns and thistles in our life to draw our dependence on him. God does allow things to happen, sickness to happen for the purpose of drawing us closer to him. Absolutely. I'm not, I'm not putting those things down as, as saying they can't be used by God. Of course they're used by God. But what he's talking about in this context is specifically suffering for Jesus' sake. It's suffering for your faith. It's because I am a Christian, I am in this difficulty. When the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel in Acts chapter five, they were told by the Jewish council not to teach in the name of Jesus. And they refused saying, we must obey God rather than men. And then they were beaten. But they left there Verse 41 of Acts 5 says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And I, I'm so glad that Jesus included in there utter all kinds of evil against you falsely because you may not have, pers- have experienced prison. You may not have experienced being beaten, but I'm sure that everybody could point to a time when they were falsely accused or had evil uttered about them because they were a Christian. And if that's the case, Christian, then you have experienced persecution. Yes, perhaps light comparatively, but it's still persecution. And Jesus says, you are blessed. You are blessed when you suffer for your faith. How can I do that? How can I rejoice in my suffering? One thing to remember is to go back to the beginning of the verse. It has been granted. It has been granted that you suffer for Christ's sake. Brother, sister, when you are suffering for your faith, you are in God's hands. When we as a church, when we suffer for the gospel, and I don't know what's coming down the road. I don't know what ways we as Harvest are gonna suffer for what we believe, but I do believe it's coming. And when it does, suffer together. And remember, this is part of God's plan. Paul was an example to the Philippians when he was planting the church at Philippi in Acts chapter 16, he and Silas, you might remember the story, were thrown into prison. They suffered in Philippi and the Philippians saw it. 
Paul is suffering right now as he writes this letter as he's sitting in, in, in prison. And that's probably what he means when he says, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I'm suffering, you're going to suffer, let's suffer together. It's an act of grace. Why does God allow these things? Well, what turns an ugly lump of clay into something useful and beautiful? Shaping heat and pressure. We suffer as a part of God's gracious plan and the outcome is stronger faith and a more united church. Charles Spurgeon once said, they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. It's for our sanctification. Our suffering is granted by a gracious God. The Christ-centered life. Remember when Jesus said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. Jesus Christ was so laser focused on the will of God, on submitting to God. He had the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. He received a charge of crucifixion from his father and he let nothing distract him from that. Not even, not even the night that he urged his disciples to pray and they fell asleep. And do you remember the story? He comes back and he wakes them. Pray. And they fell asleep. In his darkest moment, in his deepest, if I can say of of our Lord, depression, the disciples fell asleep. And at one point, Jesus comes, and there they are sleeping. He doesn't even bother to wake them up again. And he's looking at his disciples, and it's almost as if God is saying, that's what you're dying for. Lazy, distracted men. That's what you're going to the cross for. And we can't help but identify with that. Lazy, distracted people. But you see, he had a charge from the Father. And he was so laser focused that it didn't matter if they were lazy, distracted, cowardice, He died for them anyway. And the more we learn that message, and the more we get that gospel message 
deep in our own lives, the more and more that we will be Christ-centered. The greater impact that the gospel has on our lives will allow us to have a greater impact in the lives of each other and in the lives of our world to the glory of God. And that is what brings true satisfaction and joy. Bow with me. Jesus, you are good. Jesus, I want you at the center of my life. And I know the people in this room want the same thing. But we need your help. We are lazy, distracted, cowardice. We need Jesus Christ. We need the gospel deeper and deeper in our lives, drawing us closer to you, drawing us closer to each other, allowing us to be lights to this world. We want to see change. And that only comes when we center our life around Jesus Christ. So come, Lord Jesus. Come and do your work. And help us to declare from the bottom of our hearts to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray in your great and awesome name, the name of Jesus. Amen.